Hello and welcome to What The Heck, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. Every week we look at something unexplained, telling a story or describing it, and then look at the theories surrounding it. I'm your host, Glenn, and I can't give you the answers to these unexplained things because I don't know what they are. I'm just here to give you the information to decide for yourself. All research is done as academically as I can, and references are given at the end of the episode. This week's episode is a scientific episode. We're looking at both the dark and deep webs. It's easy to think that the dark and deep webs aren't mysteries, but they're still mysterious to some, me included. I'm gonna be learning as I write this episode. Let's start simple here. What are the dark and deep webs? All of us use the internet. There are millions of web pages, databases and servers on browsers. But that's only the surface. Most of us will only ever spend our time on the surface web, where search engines like Google will only show us sites that are visible. Known as the surface or open web, this is where all the visible websites are found. Most people view the internet as an iceberg, with the visible web being the top portion that's visible above the water. Some people believe that it roughly equates to around 5% of the entire internet. Traditional browsers like Google Chrome and Mozilla Firefox are used to view this, with websites being labelled with registry operators like .com and .org, making them easy to locate on the internet. However, Underneath all of these, the deep web resides. Within that, we see the dark web as well. If we consider the iceberg analogy, regular search engines can be seen like fishing boats, only able to catch websites that dwell near the surface. Anything below that, like illicit content and private databases, are out of reach and reside in the deep web. Dark web and deep web are often used interchangeably, but aren't quite the same thing. A lot of the deep web is perfectly legal and safe. Large parts of the deep web are set aside for databases. These are both public and private collections that aren't connected to other areas of the web. They can only be searched within the confines of the databases themselves. Some companies also use intranets, which sit inside the deep web and are internal networks for businesses, schools and even the government. Most of us use the deep web daily and don't even realise it. Posts that are in review or web pages that are having designs changed are included, but most surprisingly on the list are the pages we visit when banking online. They're hidden from the surface to protect user information and privacy. These pages include financial accounts, email and social messaging accounts, private databases and intranets, media documentation and legal files. Even still, the deep web goes further. Going deeper shows that there is danger inside. While we can use it to view things that we can't see on the surface by bypassing local restrictions or pirating media, the deeper you go, the darker it gets. To get to these depths, people need Tor browsers to access the websites within. 
Internet safety becomes vital when looking at the deeper portions of the internet. Even within regular browsers, we can reach the deeper portions of the web by traveling through enough tangential pathways to end up in hazardous places like piracy sites, politically radical sites, or even viewing disturbing content. The dark web is the part of the internet that contains unindexed sites that can only be accessed using Tor browsers. It's viewed as smaller than the surface web, but hides a lot of things. Being unindexed allows them to remain hidden from regular browser search engines, but the sites also have other methods of remaining hidden. They utilize virtual traffic tunnels, which are randomized network infrastructures that keep them hidden from regular internet users because they can only be accessed in specific ways. The dark web also has unique registry operators, meaning that the operator tag would need to be known to find the site in the first place. Regular browsers won't find these operator tags because they're not designed to search for them and because these tags give firewalls and encryption to prevent them from being accessed. Not everything on the deep web is criminal or illegal. Plenty of legal parties have utilized this part of the internet. However, dark web safety is very different to deep web safety. Dark web activities can be more extreme and threatening if they are sought out, and the repercussions can also be more extreme and threatening. It's important to note that it isn't illegal to access the dark web. There are places on the dark web that are completely legal and utilize the dark web for specific benefits like anonymity. The dark web also offers virtually untraceable services and sites and also allows people to take actions that are illegal. Because of this, it makes sense that the dark web has attracted less than savoury people who offer illegal services and can remain completely anonymous. That's not to say it's all illegal though. The anonymity allows people to share their experiences without being placed in danger. Victims of abuse and persecution, whistleblowers and even political dissidents are able to utilise it in an effective way. On the other hand of this though, while not illegal, visiting some sites on the dark web may become an issue. Visiting some of the less than savoury sites can bring unnecessary risks to those who intend on using information for nefarious purposes. Without being knowledgeable about personal internet safety, various threats can appear. If someone isn't careful when using the dark web, they can open themselves up to all sorts of threats. Malware is present in some places, giving people the tools to cause cyber attacks. These can come in the form of keyloggers, botnet malware, ransomware and phishing malware. Most of these can be caught by using endpoint security though. Another risk to users is scams. Some illegal activities like hiring hitmen can be hidden scams designed for profit and to steal money from willing buyers. Perhaps the biggest issue a user might face is the government. A lot of Tor-based sites are being found and taken over by police across the world. Because of this, there is increasing risk of users becoming a government target for simply visiting a site. 
Drug marketplaces like the Silk Road have been taken for police surveillance before. The police use a custom software to infiltrate and analyse activity, allowing them to uncover the identity of anyone visiting the site. This means that even if someone only looks and never purchases, they can still be incriminated. These infiltrations can put you at further risk as well. In some countries, evading government restrictions can come with imprisonment. For example, in China, they use something called the Great Firewall that limits access to some sites for that reason alone. If anyone circumvents this, they can be placed on a watch list or immediately sentenced to jail time. With all the negative, it seems difficult to say why exactly anyone would go onto the dark web. However, like I said before, it's not all illegal things and police spying. There are a few sites available on the dark web that are surprisingly light. There's a site called The Chess, which is dedicated to anonymous games of chess in real life. It's free to play, and there's a forum that allows users to discuss strategies as well. Some people use the dark web to get academic research. While not necessarily legal, there are resources on the dark web that allow users to have free access to millions of academic papers. Google Scholar is very similar, but sometimes these papers are locked behind paywalls. The American Journal of Freestanding Research Psychology was the first free and open darknet academic journal, only allowing academic papers that have been submitted by the original authors. The first media outlet on the dark web was a non-profit publication called ProPublica. They offer world news to all on the dark web, including countries where news is heavily censored. Their presence allows anyone to read uncensored news anonymously, leaving no trace when they're done. Other journalists use the dark web in a system called OpenDrop. It doesn't submit an IP address or any other browser data, allowing users to store dates and times of their messages. Media outlets like Forbes, The New Yorker, The Washington Post and Vice Media all use it. Even the US government is experimenting with it so that they can receive anonymous vulnerability reports and collaborate with more white hat hackers. Hackers that look for vulnerabilities in system security. There are even anonymous and heavily encrypted email services, allowing users to create accounts on the darknet so that they can interact with less worry about their identity being discovered. The CIA uses the dark web for anonymous collaboration as well. They even have a site on there allowing for anonymous tips. Tormetrics uses their presence to publish anonymous data and analytics, which provides an insight into how Tor browsers are being used, and who buy. These analytics show that at least 60% of users are using Tor browsers for legal purposes, and the top reason for that is political censorship. Why would we have an entire section of the internet that's hidden from the world though? Where did it come from? Once again, 
we have an unconventional episode. The dark web is a real thing that's completely accessible. It's not a myth or a mystery. So, as with any episode like this, we're going to look a bit deeper into it. Instead of theories, I'm going to look at the history of the internet. The idea of the internet can be traced all the way back to the 1960s and the creation of something known as ARPANET, also known as the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network. It was an experimental computer network and the forerunner of the internet and later the dark web. The idea for ARPANET came from the desire to share information over large distances without using phone connections between each computer in a network. It functioned as a communication system that later took on a tentacle-like structure, making it possible to communicate between devices. Although it began as an invention for academics, it wasn't long before the military found a use for it. The Cold War was in full swing, and ARPA, which was an arm of the US Department of Defense, was looking for communication systems that didn't have a central core. The lack of a central core would protect against any attempted blackouts on the network. ARPA began to fund ARPANET, hoping that it could link the computers at Pentagon-funded research institutes by using phone lines. ARPANET became more privatised by the government over time, but ARPA still let researchers from around the US have the freedom to try radical experiments and share the results on the network. This then led to the first illegal online transaction in the 1970s. Stanford students used ARPANET in their artificial intelligence laboratory to buy marijuana from MIT. It was an experiment and the researchers had the freedom to try this. But ARPANET still had strong government ties. The Stanford and MIT marijuana purchase led to ARPANET's founders splitting it. ARPANET became a civilian version of the system, forming the basis of the modern-day internet. The other part became MILNET, the military and defence agency version of ARPANET. The internet was released around 1983 and was an instant hit. As the world became more connected, it only gained popularity. This then led to questions about how to store information. The answer came in the form of data havens. These work in a similar way to tax havens. Massive amounts of data could be sent to countries with less internet laws, so it could remain out of government hands. These havens showed that there was a concern for privacy online. Regardless of the concern, the internet was publicly released in August 1991. Millions of people began their online journeys to try it out. But it wasn't long until there were people using the internet for less than savoury purposes. CDs were the way music was circulated in the 90s, at least the later 90s. But along with that, the MP3 compression format of sound released, allowing people to rip music illegally. This made its way onto online forums and later sites like Napster. People began to notice that the internet was the way to get whatever they wanted, and more illegal activity began to appear. 
The 90s were when the Tor network began its development, so along with the illegal activity, the very beginning of the commercial internet saw the beginning of people attempting to explore the depths of the new way to communicate. In 2000, Freenet, an anonymous file sharing software, released. It didn't gain as much popularity as the Tor network, but helped to grow the demand for anonymity on the internet. History isn't particularly clear on whether the Tor network inspired the creation of Freenet, but both of them, along with another software called I2P, allowed people to access the internet anonymously. Tor would release in 2002, and it is instrumental in creating the home of the dark web. Tor was completely private and created a free and anonymous way to browse the web. The creators had good intentions for their network, but had no idea of the impact that they would have on criminality on the internet. As the network gained popularity, users began to demand that the creators address censorship. This demand involved allowing people living under oppressive governments to publish thoughts and opinions freely, along with viewing websites that were restricted for them. The creators began to develop a way to bypass government firewalls to allow this. Although the software was free, the platform was complex, which restricted usage to those who were tech-savvy. This led to the creation of a browser for Tor. It would make the software more user-friendly and allow the network to be accessed easily. The release of the browser changed the internet. Tor's new and user-friendly interface saw an emergence of darker websites and communities. Some of these places were built by those living under an oppressive government, designed to push back against censorship. But the anonymity of these corners of the internet created spaces hosting illegal activities. The deep web was born, and mostly hidden from view. However, transactions were relatively difficult to complete. The potential to be thousands of miles apart and the danger of using bank details in these spaces out of fear of paper trails posed a problem. There was an answer though. Throughout the 90s, people had been experimenting with currency in a digital age. Nothing stuck until 2009 though, when Bitcoin released. It revolutionised transactions on the deep web, solving the problem of completing transactions. It featured a special accounting ledger that previous cryptocurrencies didn't have, preventing users from copying their money. The rise of illegal transactions surged in the 2010s, but the deep web served as a good thing during 2010 in an event called the Arab Spring. Tor's browser had made it much easier to browse the web. It protected people's identities and allowed them to access resources, social media and block sites that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. This gave users and activists alike access to outside resources at times when they needed it the most. The Arab Spring was a series of anti-government protests, uprisings and armed rebellions across Arab countries. It began in Tunisia and was a response to corruption in the government and economic stagnation. The next year, the world learned of the Silk Road, a marketplace designed to make illegal drugs accessible to anyone. 
an expose was published which actually drove traffic to the site and boosted sales. The FBI caught on quickly, starting a campaign to shut the site down. It was a historic event, drawing in almost one million users at one point. The popularity of the Silk Road shows how high the demand for illegal drugs was at the time, whilst also highlighting how governments were beginning to crack down on deep web usage. Demand for ways to protect against mass surveillance was growing by now, and Edward Snowden's whistleblowing in 2013 thrust that into the mainstream. Tor had been instrumental in his search for information, helping him to maintain security throughout. It only proved how tight the security on the Tor network was. The case also showed how Tor could be used as a force for good, allowing people to do things that they couldn't on the surface web. This began something. The deep web was filled with things that were illicit or outright illegal. The FBI's involvement in the initial takedown of the Silk Road allowed them to lead in more sting operations inside the deep web, and Snowden's whistleblowing proved that those things could be done as privately as necessary. In 2015, the FBI struck the deep web again. This time, they had worked with related agencies around the world to take down a website that was used to distribute child pornography, Playpen. At one point, the site had around 150,000 users. The FBI and the team of agencies from around the world shut the whole thing down. The site no longer exists, unlike the Silk Road, which can still be found. However, its popularity just goes to show how huge the demand for illegal activities is and the lengths people will go to attain them. Although other big events have happened in the history of the deep web, like illegal marketplace busts, the important ones have been noted here. The history really highlights how the deep web can be used. That doesn't take away the fact that it's still a place that can be dangerous though. If you plan to use the deep web at any point, Make sure you use it safely. Information from this episode came from a Casper Sky article and a security intelligence article. The history from this episode came from an SOS Can Help article and the Wikipedia entry on the 2010 Arab Spring. References and links are posted on social media if you want to take a look. The link tree is available in the episode description so you can go to your preferred social media or listen on your preferred platform. Patreon is still unchanged with a £3 tier if you want to support me, but I have nothing to put on there yet. Suggestions, personal stories and corrections can be sent through the email in the episode description too. This week's Creature Feature releases on Saturday and next week's episode releases next Wednesday, so hold on until then. <laughs>